known by our Lord. Please stand and hear these words of a tried to justify the pay that the later workers received, insisting that clearly they must have worked harder or been more productive than the earlier workers and thus been deserving of the wage that they received. And even some have described the parable as Jesus' take on a landowner's responsibility or a business owner's responsibility to pay a proper wage. So where do we begin? Well, as we try to understand this parable, I think we would do well to remember two different things. First, Jesus told this parable, as he did all of his parables, in response to a very specific situation. And if we can identify that situation, we stand a much better chance of understanding what Jesus is trying to tell us in this parable. And second, we need to focus on what the parable actually says. It's natural for us to try to fill in the gaps with our own knowledge and experience, but when we do that, we risk going astray from Jesus' intended meaning. But before we do either of those two things, let's look at Jesus' words here in verse 1. That this parable is describing something about the kingdom of heaven. Now we've learned a good amount about the kingdom of heaven so far in this series. In Sarah's sermon four weeks ago, we learned that the kingdom of heaven is like a seed that had been planted in a field. The seed is present. The seed is growing although we may not notice the seed is present or that it is growing. And we saw that Jesus himself planted the seed of God's kingdom in this world and that one day his kingdom will grow into its fullness. Then two weeks ago, Andrew spoke to us on the parable of the wheat and the weeds, excuse me, which describes the kingdom of heaven as a crop of wheat planted in a field. Unfortunately, an enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat, but the the landowner had to allow the wheat and the weeds to grow together so that no wheat would be lost before the harvest. So just like the weeds alongside the wheat in the parable, we saw that evil is present in this world alongside the kingdom of heaven. We cannot extinguish that evil, and we will feel its impact. But Andrew encouraged us that if we act with mercy, patience, and perseverance, that we can prepare others and ourselves for the harvest, for Jesus' second coming. So first and foremost, the parable of the workers in the vineyard is a parable about the kingdom of heaven. It's a kingdom that exists in this world already, but it looks quite different from the rest of the world. It's a kingdom that's growing as well, but has not yet reached its fullness. So what aspect of the kingdom of heaven is Jesus describing? Well, let's kind of dive in first to the context to try to figure this out. So Matthew chapter 20 where our parable is found, occurs in the same setting as Matthew chapter 19. At the beginning of 19, we see that Jesus and his disciples are traveling from Galilee towards Jerusalem. And they're going to Jerusalem for Passover. And the end of this Passover week would be when Jesus was crucified. Now, as often was the case, large crowds followed Jesus, and they gathered around to be healed and to hear his teaching. And toward the end of chapter 19, we see the story of the rich young man who asked Jesus what good thing he must do in order to earn eternal life. And there's a brief conversation between Jesus and this young man. And it ends with Jesus telling him that if he wants to be perfect, he must sell his possessions, give to the poor, and then come and follow Jesus. And of course, as many of us know, the young man goes away sad, unable to part with his wealth. So Jesus' point here was not so much to give the young man a list of things to do, 
but rather to bring attention to the state of his heart. Jesus was showing him that no man can do what this young man was asking how to do, how to earn eternal life. And so chapter 19, verse 26, Jesus says about salvation, with man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. And so as we know, salvation is not about what man can do to earn it, but solely about what God does. And then there's Peter. Peter listens to this whole exchange, and he totally misses the point. Uh, And instead, he sees an opportunity to make himself and his fellow disciples look good. He points out that they have left everything to follow Jesus. They did the exact thing that this rich young man would not do. What rewards then would they receive? So in asking this question, Peter sets the focus solely on himself and his fellow disciples and actually takes the focus away from Jesus, where it belongs in this exchange. But Jesus is patient, and he responds that all who make sacrifices for God's kingdom will indeed receive a reward in return. In fact, they will receive more than what they deserve. They will inherit eternal life and receive 100 times as much as they sacrificed. At this point, Jesus makes a statement that is very similar to the statement which concludes our parable today. He says, But many who are first will be last, and many who are last will be first. And that's kind of the context where our parable occurs. But let's talk a little bit more about Peter's question. I think it offers a good opportunity for us to reflect on ourselves. Are we proud of our accomplishments in this life? I am. Do we make sacrifices and do good work do good works in order to gain rewards? I do. Or are our sacrifices and good works done in love and obedience to our Lord? So Peter's question, like we said earlier, shows that he's focused on receiving rewards for his work rather than focusing on Jesus. And this is the problem or the situation that leads Jesus to tell his parable of the workers in the vineyard. So with that context in mind, let's look a little closer at the parable and make a few observations. Pretty simply, to start off here, in the parable, five groups of workers are hired, each at a different time of the day. And the first group of workers, as we see in verse 2, agreed ahead of time to work a full day for a denarius. This would have been a typical agreement of that day, first century Israel. Hiring of day laborers was common. If you didn't have a full-time job, if you weren't a landowner, you'd go to the market in the morning, and you'd wait to be hired. Workday would commonly last sunrise to sunset, nominally 12 hours, and the standard wage was a denarius, just like we see in the parable. Now, as a side note, I think it's important for us to point out that a denarius is not a large sum of money. We could think of it roughly the same as somebody who makes minimum wage today. So in Colorado, that minimum wage is now $12.56 an hour. And so somebody who works a full 12-hour workday, ignoring any overtime, they'd make about 150 bucks. Uh, I think 150 bucks is not insignificant, but if it's your income on which you're trying to support a family, I think you're going to have a difficult time. And similarly, those who were day laborers in first century Israel, earning their denarius a day, would have a difficult time supporting a family on one denarius a day. So why do I bring this up? Well, as I mentioned earlier, it's often argued that this parable addresses salvation. 
and that the wages that each worker receives are symbolic of the kingdom of heaven. But I think this interpretation of salvation misses in a couple of ways. First, other parables present the kingdom of heaven as something worth much more than a single denarius. Think of the parable of the pearl of great price or the parable of the buried treasure. Characters in these parables are willing to sell everything that they own in order to gain such treasures, showing that they are worth much more than a single denarius. Now, the second reason I think salvation doesn't fit here lies with the first group of workers. They worked a full day, and they earned their wage. But of course, as we've already talked about, nobody is able to be saved through their own effort and works. Jesus said that nobody comes to the Father except through him. We are saved solely by the grace of God. Let's go back to our general discussion on wages. With the second group hired at 9 a.m., we see the landowner promises to pay them whatever is right. And we don't really know any more than that. In the final three groups, the parable gives us no information on the potential wages that they may have agreed to. Notice also that no mention is made about the productivity of any one group above the others, only the hours that they worked. So as we read this parable, and as Jesus' disciples listen to this parable, the only thing that they would be able to expect what people would be paid was the hours that they worked. So what does all this discussion about wages tell us? A couple things. First, no worker is paid unfairly. Even that first group of workers who worked the longest hours received exactly the amount they agreed to. Standard wage of the day, a denarius for their days of work. Second thing this discussion tells us is that those hired late in the day clearly receive much more than what they earned. And as we see in verse 15, this is solely due to the landowner's generosity. So that's great news, right? The landowner was generous. Everybody received at least a fair wage. Nobody was the victim of any injustice. Everything seems right. But the first group of workers still finds a reason to complain. And they complain, of course, because of the landowner's generosity. If we look at their complaint in verse 12, they say, Those who were hired last worked only one hour, and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the work and the heat of the day. So what does their complaint reveal? Well, if that first group of workers had received their denarius, and the later groups of workers had been paid less, according to the number of hours they actually worked, that first group of workers most likely would not have complained. Instead, they were envious of the blessing that their co-workers received. So speaking of this blessing that the later workers receive, and this parable in general, what's, what's your initial reaction? Do you rejoice at the blessing that they receive? Maybe you recognize that by receiving this blessing, they could better provide for their families? Or do you understand the grumble of the first group of, first group of workers and think that that first group maybe should have been paid more since they worked longer hours? <clears throat> I side with the first group of workers, generally. They worked more hours, they deserve more pay. I've been in their shoes before, in fact. I've had jobs where I had coworkers who were paid more than I was, but I thought that I worked more hours and I worked harder than they did, so I deserved more pay. 
But the funny thing about that is, kind of like this first group of workers, if you were to pull me aside and say, is what you paid fair for the work that you did? I would have to say yes. And in fact, if I was perfectly honest, I would have to say that I was probably overpaid. So just like that first group of workers, I wasn't upset about what I was paid. I was envious that others were paid what I thought was too much. So envy is a common theme in the Bible. Good to know that I'm not alone. Just to name a few examples, envy is what led Cain to kill Abel. Envy is what led 10 of Jacob's sons to sell their brother Joseph to slave traders. And envy is what made Jonah so upset with God. He didn't want God to forgive the people of Nineveh and to show them his grace. So what causes this envy? Well, I think in this parable and in these other scriptures and in my situation that I just described, when we're envious, it shows a lack of contentment with our circumstances. And that lack of contentment can come for a couple of reasons. Maybe we think we deserve more than what we have actually received. Or maybe, like the workers in this parable, we think that others deserve less than they've actually received. And that makes us envious. But when we focus only on what we think we deserve or others deserve, we're making the same mistake that Peter made back in chapter 19 when he asked Jesus, we've left everything for you, what will we receive? So when we do that, we take the focus off of God and become blind to his work. I think we see that blindness and that resulting lack of contentment in today's reading from Exodus. Israelites, they were upset at their lack of drinking water, and they failed to see, they were blind to the fact, that the same God who had led them out of slavery in Egypt could and would provide them water to drink. And in my example of my envy for my coworker, I failed to recognize that I was being blessed in my circumstances because I was receiving much more than what I was actually earning. <clears throat> I think envy is something that we all struggle with. Our coworkers get raises, our neighbors get new cars. Maybe we've got certain friends that seem to have all the luck while we have to struggle our way through life. And I don't want to discount the fact that life is oftentimes a struggle. I think that's one of the takeaways from the parable of the wheat and the weeds. We have to exist alongside the weeds as we go through this world. It seems natural for us to grumble, to complain, to be envious when things don't go our way. But what if we could change our perspective and have a perspective that's more centered on the kingdom of of heaven? What if we could learn to have gratitude for the good things that we do receive. Put it another way, if we can put aside our envy, what might we learn about the kingdom of heaven? Well, I think there's two main points about the kingdom of heaven that we can draw from this parable. First, in the kingdom of heaven, we receive rewards beyond reckoning. To put that another way, none of us get what we deserve. We all receive much, much more. So with that in mind, we should identify with the workers who came late in the day. We receive grace and generosity and rewards worth much more than any work that we could ever hope to do. And Jesus promises us this. Recall his words at the end of chapter 19. Verse 29, Jesus promises to give eternal life and rewards 
100 times greater than anything that we sacrifice for him. And so when we recognize his blessing, we're recognizing that his kingdom is here and his, is present. And we can enjoy the blessing and the peace that he provides to us. Or just as we saw with our words of assurance from Psalm 16, we can recognize the delightful inheritance that we have received. But oftentimes, I think we tend to act more like that first group of workers, thinking that we earn what we receive. Or like the disciples, that we make great sacrifices and therefore deserve great reward. So let's think about what we really deserve for a moment. And I think Paul addresses this in Romans 3, where he discusses our sinful nature, and he kind of quotes simultaneously several of the Psalms. Paul writes, As it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. So I think the takeaway from this letter from Paul is we don't want what we deserve because, simply put, we don't do good and we don't deserve God's favor or blessing. But God, rich in mercy and full of love for us, has brought us into his kingdom, a place of rewards beyond reckoning. And with that in mind, how can we not find peace and contentment in his care? And that leads us to our second point about the kingdom of heaven. It is a place of contentment, not comparison. We all love to celebrate the gifts and blessings that we receive in this life, and rightfully so. We can celebrate children, grandchildren, weddings, new jobs, new homes, finding dogs that are lost in the wilderness, and so many other things. But we should also rejoice at the blessings that others receive and share with them in the recognition that it is God himself who provides those blessings. So with that in mind, the first group of workers should have been content in their circumstances. They should have set their envy aside and celebrated the blessing that their fellow workers received. They should have practiced contentment over comparison. Now, just a few verses after this parable, we read that the mother of James and John requests that her sons be given special places of honor and authority in Jesus' kingdom. And this sets off a conflict among the disciples. And it would not be the first time the disciples argued about which one was the best or who deserved the most, and it wouldn't be the last. <clears throat> but Jesus' response to this conflict tells us a lot about how we should aim to live in his kingdom. Jesus says that whoever wants to be the greatest of the disciples must become a servant, must seek to put others before themselves, and must be willing to set their own lives aside. To put it another way, the one who wants to be greatest in the kingdom of heaven must follow the example of the king who sacrificed everything for his subjects. That's tough to do. But how can we humble ourselves to that point? To make, us, make ourselves a servant to those around us. I think by, my, by remembering the message of this parable, that we live in a kingdom that is a place of rewards beyond reckoning and contentment over comparison. Let's close in prayer. 
God, we thank you that in your sovereignty, you have chosen us, chosen to bless us, not according to what we deserve, but according to your own character. Let us never forget that we already receive so much more than what we deserve, and let us recognize the blessings our neighbors receive with joy, not jealousy. Teach us to be content and to keep our focus on your love and grace rather than ourselves. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. As we prepare our hearts for...